Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Snafu. Please visit our website and our Patreon page for bonus content such as pictures of the characters, maps of the airfield, Q&A episodes, and much, much more. This podcast contains explicit content that may not be suitable for some audience members. Listener's discretion is advised. The boss was standing in Colonel Poole's office, waiting for him to enter in. He knew he had messed up by yelling and threatening Dr. Dick in the hallway of the recovery wing of the hospital. The looks on the faces of the nurses was burnt into his mind. He wondered what Colonel Poole was going to do with him. He didn't think that his actions were worth him getting demoted or being stripped of his recent promotion. Before he could think any more on the subject, the door flew open and Colonel Poole came walking in. Good morning, Captain Bacchus. Good morning, sir, the boss said watching Colonel Poole walk behind his desk. Once he arrived, he faced the boss and asked him, What happened? I let my emotions get the best of me, sir. Yes, you did. And uh, may I ask, what caused you to lose your head? Well... Doctor, the doctor was mistreating a wounded patient and I felt that he needed to be put in his place, sir. Colonel Poole smiled, put his hands on his hips, and after watching the boss's face grow into a face of confusion, he replied, Captain Bacchus, you have had one hell of a time since you became squadron commander. Now, normally, I would be worried and unsure of your leadership skills and I'd be rethinking my decision. With that being said, Captain, you have once again lucked out. I have received several complaints about this Dr. Dick, as he's referred to, and your little incident opened up the floodgates for people to come forward about Dr. Dick, and um, from here on out, he's been removed. However, that doesn't mean that you're off the hook, especially with me. Over the next few weeks, I want to see your name on that flight roster. Not as a punishment, but you need to be flying with your men, especially in the beginning. Is that clear? Yes, sir, the boss said. Colonel Poole proceeded to sit down at his desk and said, Good. Now get yourself out of here and keep yourself out of here. I'm starting to grow very tired of seeing your face here every goddamn day. The boss, not knowing how to take Colonel Poole's comment, left the office and headed towards his hut.
hours and 28 minutes later, May 2nd, 1944, 9,000 feet above Barnstaple, England, 1043. Burke was flying his plane stormy night northeast, heading for the bombing training area off Morte Bay. Hunched over the bomb site down in the nose was Timothy, the new bombardier for Lord of Bull. Joining him down in the nose, sitting at the navigator's seat, was Sal, who had just given Burke the right heading to the target. The last few days for Timothy had been more change in social interaction than what he was ready for. He found it difficult to interact with new people, and he often leaned towards being distant and antisocial to cope with it. However, he knew he couldn't do that in Thurlow for multiple reasons, first of which came down to the new location. He had nowhere to hide. The second had to do with expectations, since he knew that having connections and having a relationship with members of his crew was going to be critical for building trust with the men that he was going to be flying with. Timothy figured that he could just glue himself to the ever-so-socially-inclined Sal and ride his social coattails until he fit in. So far, Timothy felt like he was getting nowhere. After Timothy opened the bomb bay doors, he locked the target into his Norton bombsite and began his short bombing run. The idea behind this training exercise was to test Timothy in short-distance bombing situations. This was oddly something that Rosie was a specialist in and was the main reason he was able to hit the target in Brunswick as accurately as he did. The boss felt that this ability was crucial for the bombardier of his crew to have. Watching the pins come together, the dummy 400-pound bomb fell from the bomb bay. Timothy closed the bomb bay doors and the radio operator called in the observation tower that their bomb had just been released. Back at Thurlow, the boss was sitting in his office, waiting by the phone to hear the results of Timothy's bombing run. As soon as the phone rang, he picked it up and listened closely. The observer on the other line relayed to the boss that the bomb Timothy had dropped hit just 10 feet away from the center of the bullseye, damn near perfect. Alright, now it's from the five mile mark. Okay. Alright, well, I'll be sending him back to do a normal 10-mile bombing run from 25,000 feet soon. So, you got that? Okay. Thank you. Hanging up the phone, that's when the boss rang into the control tower and informed the tower that once Burke had landed, he'd be going back to do another practice run. After that phone call, the boss proceeded to inform Burke's armament officer that another dummy bomb would be needed and ready. Once hanging up, the boss arose from his chair and made his way out of his office, heading towards Jack's hut. After catching a ride from a passing by jeep, the boss finally arrived at Jack's hut. Opening it, the boss was astonished to find Jack and the men from Hailing Mary not in their hut. After searching for nearly half an hour, the boss finally found Jack playing baseball with Parnell and about two dozen or so other officers and grounds crewmen over at what the airmen called the field. Jack, called over the boss. Jack, who was sitting on the sidelines waiting for his turn at bat next, hesitated at first to run over to the boss. But when Leslie softly uttered, just go and get it over with, Jack came to the boss's call. 
Yes, Captain Bacchus? Asked Jack. Jack, do you know where your new bombardier and navigator are? Yeah, they're flying their practice sortie that you set them up for today. I was there when the runner came and got them. Well, then do you know what Lieutenant Winger scored on his short distance bombing? No? How would I have known that? Asked Jack. That's right. How would you have known that? I came to tell you, and I spent almost an hour looking for you. By now, Burke is going to be returning, and you should have known what was going on way before they landed. Well, they haven't landed, and you did tell me. I don't understand what the issue is. Of course you don't, because you're still in the co-pilot seat, expecting me to do all the responsibilities. What responsibilities? Asked Jack. The responsibilities of being the chief of your own crew. You should have been the one to take Lieutenant Salbatini or whatever the fuck his name is and Lieutenant Winger up on their practice mission today. But instead, you allowed Burke to take them. That's because I thought you had chosen them. Who am I to override the fact that Burke was chosen to carry out the practice sortie today? Well, weren't you a little confused that a pilot with less experience than you was chosen over you to take your new bombardier navigator up? Asked the boss. Yeah, I was a little taken aback, but again, I didn't think anything of it. Last I heard, you were going to find someone else to take your place and you were going to keep me in the co-pilot seat of the bull. Remember that? Responded Jack. At this point, both Jack and the boss's argument was echoing all around them and the baseball game stopped and many of the people playing began eavesdropping on the conversation. Jack, once again, you have shown zero leadership skills and zero effort despite the fact that I have given you chance after chance to prove yourself. Whoa, 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 whoa. Let's be honest, Captain Bacchus. If I had overrided your call today for Burke to go up instead of me, you would have had my head on a silver platter for undermining your authority or whatever you would have come up with. You have zero... Do we have a problem, Captain Bacchus? Called out a voice from the baseball field. It was Parnell. The boss looked over at Parnell, smiled, and said... Everything's fine, Lieutenant Parnell. You can go back to playing your game. Are you sure? Sounds like it's getting hot. Parnell asked. Jack at this point turned around to see Parnell standing among the other men. I'm sure, Lieutenant. Thank you for your concern. The boss yelled out before setting his eyes back down onto Jack. Well, I guess that settles it, Jack. I'll get someone to be assigned to your crew ASAP to be the pilot-in-chief, and I'll keep doing the... Preparatory work for you and your crew. Jack, staying silent, watched the boss dramatically walk away. As the boss got about five yards away from him, Jack yelled out, Are there any more tricks you have planned that I should be on the lookout for? The boss never stopped walking. He just shook his head and made his way back to the main road. Mills was walking back from the mess hall along with Johnny C., the radio operator from Hellfire from above, and the last enlisted man from the crew. When do you have to be on potato duty? Johnny C. asked. Tomorrow. I have to be up at zero dark thirty for that shit. Mills replied. I've never done potato detail myself, but I imagine it's rough. Well, I'm anticipating it to be horrible. Beans had it yesterday and he said it was bad, but... Anyways, um... Johnny, I've been meaning to ask you a question. What's that? Well, yesterday was another bumpy ride with the new guys in our hut. Me, Willie, and Tommy ended up sneaking out and getting drunk with the guys from Deuces. And since Beans was on mess duty, 
the two new guys were just left on their own all day long. I know I should feel bad, but I don't. So what's your question? My question is, how are you handling it? I mean, you're a guy who is surrounded by new guys. It's not really the same situation, Mills. I lost all of my buddies on a single day. Rob was always distant, and I lost connection with him after that Berlin mission. I came back to a crew whose faces were fresh and new. You know, I hated it, but I attached myself to those who I still knew and I recognized. People like, you know, you and, well, Skimpy. You know, before his number was called up too. But anyways, I just adapted. I just fucking hate the two of them. You know, I just don't see how that's ever going to change. Well, don't try to change it. Do you trust them? Mills paused. Well, that's a no. Fact is, whether you like it or not, you have to trust the men you're going to be working with. If they've never given you a reason not to trust them, then I'd say suck up whatever ill feelings you have towards them and do your job alongside them. Besides, it's not like you're in the same compartment of the plane with the two of them. Beans is directly behind you and both of these new guys are in completely different parts of the plane than you. That's true. Mills affirmed. I mean, let's be honest. If we were back home, what would people think about this conversation? What specifically? Asked Mills. All of this. Your ill feelings, everything. Well, I mean, to be honest, I feel like my old man and pretty much anyone else back home would just tell me to keep a stiff upper lip and just move on. So do that. Johnny C. finished before he looked over at Mills with a smile on his face. Mill suddenly chuckled to himself. Hey, um, are you guys going to that movie tonight? Johnny C. asked. I was thinking about it, Mills replied. Well, you should. You know, they haven't done a movie night since before Berlin. I think they're showing that movie about Billy the Kid. Who? Billy the Kid. He's a... Never mind. Um, listen, it'll be worth you going, though. Besides, it will be a good reason for you not to be around the new guys. A smile appeared on Mills' face as he replied, hmm, That's true. Do you like war movies? Do they get your blood going? If so, I have the perfect, perfect podcast for you. This is not an affiliation. This isn't like a, we're sponsoring them, they're sponsoring us, so I got to mention them. This is just me strictly telling you about a podcast I love. The podcast is called Danger Close. It's a war film podcast where three hosts, a theater director, a movie critic, and a veteran come together each week to talk about a different war movie. Guys, this is a fantastic podcast. If you want to get into war films on just more than just a surface level, this is perfect. The hosts are phenomenal. The research is impeccable, and the quality of it is just phenomenal. I can't recommend this enough. So if you guys enjoy podcasts, you want more podcasts to make your day go by faster at work, or you wanted something to listen to while you're cleaning house or trying to fall asleep or you're driving in the car, guys, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect podcast to listen to. Danger Close, check it out for yourself. If you do, go onto the discussion page on Facebook and tell them that Aaron from Cancer 34 Studios and Snafu Podcast sent you. Thank you guys so much. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. 
You see, by visiting our website, www.snafupod.net, you can find all kinds of amazing free, it's important, free resources to help you find out more about the 8th Air Force from World War II and about the B-17 Flying Fortress. Right now, you can take a virtual tour of two real B-17s like the ones depicted in Snafu. Also, you can find links to movies, documentaries, and free YouTube videos, and much, much, much more. All you have to do is visit www.snafupod.net and check it out for yourself. Now, back to the podcast. The Auxiliary Hut, which was originally built to be a vehicle storage and repair shop, had been converted into a large event space for things such as the occasional dance or movie night. On this night, the room was flooded with airmen. The room was set up like a basketball stadium, with steep bleachers stacked ten high lining the sides at the back of the room, and chairs being set up on the floor. On the other end of the room, nestled between two large warehouse windows, sat a large canvas screen in which the movie was going to be played on. The room was dimly lit as men were funneling in, their cigarette and cigar smoke filling the room as they did. Among these men was Mills, Johnny C., and the men from Fenway Bombshell, or Parnell's crew. Mills and the others he was with all had their pockets stuffed with cans of Ham's beer that Willie had somehow acquired through a connection he had with the bartender on base. The case was a secret, and Mills knew he had to find a place to sit that was going to be out of sight of nosy airmen. Upon entering, Mills led the way to the back of the room, Having his eyes set on the second-highest bench on the back wall, Mills squirmed his way through the hundreds of airmen filling the space. Once he arrived at the back bleachers, he began walking up the stairs to the top, only to look up and see Bean sitting with Muth, Marshy, and all of Marshy's friends in the row in front of where he was attempting to go. Stopping in his tracks, the other airmen who were following the caravan of friends following Mills began yelling out for the holdup. The loud, obnoxious sound caused Beans to look in Mills' direction, and that's when Mills knew that he had no other option but to continue this trek up to the top. Noticing Mills' disappointment as he arrived at the row of seats behind him, Mills looked over at Muth and said, Just remember, it's not about you. After saying this, Beans looked right behind him to where Mills was now sitting and said, Hey, uh, where have you been all day? Been around? Responded Mills. Around, eh? Well, we were looking for you. We are going to attempt to join the officers in a game of baseball. You know, officers versus enlisted men? Beans explained. Is that so? Yeah, we ended up playing a game with them. Jack was there. It was more fun than ice skating on Christmas Eve. Mills, wanting to remain serious, couldn't help but crack a smile at Beans' ridiculous simile. Beans noticing this out of the corner of his eye cocked a smile himself and said, Oh, did that bring you back, Mills? Well, you being a scony. It's nice to have you back, Mills. Bean said, turning back around only to see Willie, Tommy, and the men from Dropping Deuces walking through the crowd of airmen. Oh, well, you look at that. There's Tommy and Willie. Bean said, standing up. No, Beans, no, come on, don't. Mills shouted out, knowing full well that it was not going to stop Beans from doing what he was doing. Soon, Willie, Tommy, and the men from Dropping Deuces joined them. Willie, of course, smoking a Winston Churchill-sized cigar, tapping his ashes on the floor below him. 
Their pockets also were lined with cans of beer. The only ones who were not in on the new secretive beer was Beans and the new guys. As the men finished filling in, Mills kept looking down at Muth and Marshy. He kept thinking of what Johnny C. had said to him. No matter what, he needed to trust these men. He was going to have to fight alongside of them and live with them until it was time for him to die or their turn to die. It was that simple. More than anything, Mills knew that his time on Earth could be over at any day now, and he didn't want to spend the remainder of his life feeling the way that he was. He wanted to make the most of the time that he had left, and he was going to keep himself to that goal. Harboring the feelings he was having towards these new guys was just silly and immature. Knowing that he had enough beers to give Mills, Muth, and Marshy, and at least one of Marshy's friends, he proceeded to hand the beers down to them as the lights dimmed down. What, what are these? Beans asked. Don't ask questions. Keep these hidden, Mills said, seeing Willie's angry face out of his peripheral vision. Looking over to Willie, Mills shrugged his shoulders and was astonished to see that Johnny C. and Attila did the same thing by handing out some of their beers over to Marshy's friends in secret. As the movie played, the large group of men drank American beer and watched American films, and for a split second, felt like they were back home and not in the middle of a war. Jack was sitting at the cock inn with Tango, Bill Davies, and Sal. Parnell, Slim Jim, and the men from Hailing Mary had all decided to go into town to show Slim Jim around, but Jack didn't feel like going into town tonight. Neither did Tango and the others. The boss had run Timothy and Sal into the ground all day with their four practice missions he had them fly. Timothy ended up going back to the hut and passing out on his bed. Sal looked visibly tired and worn out, his eyes heavy and bloodshot. He was just two beers deep in his evening, while Jack and the others were well into their fourth. I mean, like, what the fuck is up with the guy? Sal asked, speaking about the boss. Sal, I have no idea. The man got fucked in the head on our first mission. Just something snapped in his mind, and, you know, he said it's because back home, you know, before the war, he was a lawyer who dealt with cases that came as a result of an accident or something, and he wanted to ensure that he did everything he could not to make a mistake. Tango interjected by adding, and he winds up getting half the 300th blown out of the sky in an attempt to impress the brass. Sal nodded his head slightly and replied, Yeah, the, uh, your guy back at the hut, um, Sheila, I think his name is, who was telling me all about that. Yeah, I don't know, but um, what's funny is, just before that mission, I, um, I discovered Jack paused. He was almost about to share the boss's secret with the men, and he caught himself just in time. What would be the point, he thought to himself. What would it have mattered to these guys? Then the thought occurred to him. The boss has no idea that Jack knows his secret. As far as the boss was aware, only Andy knew and he died shortly after learning that information. A part of Jack wanted to use this as a knife that he could wield next time the boss tried playing games with him. He knew that he could essentially blackmail him into getting him off his back. But at the same time, Jack wasn't raised like that. 
While Jack was angry with the boss and felt sick every time the boss came into his view, Jack knew and understood that he was still human. The loss of a loved one is a traumatic thing regardless of who it happens to. To wield that traumatic event as leverage went against how Jack was raised. It wouldn't be right. Before Jack could think any more on the subject, Bill Davies asked Jack if he was alright. Jack coming to said, Yeah, I'm sorry, I forgot what I was going to say. That happens a lot, I notice. Bill Davies poked. What? Jack asked. You staring off into space mid-sentence. You do it all the time. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, what can I say? I'm a spacey guy. Jack responded, taking out a cigarette and giving it a light. So, uh, what do you think he's going to do? Tango asked. Wait and see who he picks to be the chief, I guess. What else am I supposed to do? I feel bad. Listen, no matter what, I feel bad for whoever he picks. He's probably going to have to have a flying competition to see who the best pilot is. And I think even Doolittle himself would be a washout in his eyes. Sal butted in, less to Jack's amusement. As the table chuckled and laughed some more, two airmen walked in and caught everyone's attention. One of them had a gray German shepherd at the end of a leash. As the two U.S. Army officers walked in, the bartender shouted out, Oi, no dogs allowed in the pub. The officer with the dog looked like a child being scorned by a stranger. He apologized and walked outside. Bill Davies, who apparently loved German shepherds, downed his drink and followed the two men outside. Tango, Jack, and eventually Sal followed suit. Once outside, Bill Davies was asking the two men about the dog. The man holding the dog was a skinny, young, baby-faced kid. With a youthful grin on his face, he explained that he bought the dog from a farmer back in the States before heading over to England. Since gray German shepherds are extremely rare, he saw this as a good luck charm. The owner of the dog introduced himself as 2nd Lieutenant Douglas Talbot of Omaha, Nebraska, and pilot of a brand new B-17G named Grey Thunder, named after the dog. The man sitting next to him was his co-pilot, a short, stocky individual with a round face and round, innocent eyes, rosy cheeks, and a soft nature to him. He was introduced as 2nd Lieutenant Gerald Kime of Topeka, Kansas. Jack instantly took a liking to these two new pilots, and Jack was astonished to find out that both pilots were members of the 530th Squadron. Both men had an innocence to them that wasn't the same as Timothy or Sal's. These men felt like angelic beings, here to bring comfort and calmness to a world of unrest and chaos. But at the same time, Jack felt that he had to protect these men from what he knew awaited them in the air. The two men were not about to be duped like Jack had been duped. As the night progressed, the group of men had made their way back on base and were now sitting at a table outside the officers club, enjoying the nice spring air. Jack learned more about the two men. Douglas's father also had served in the Great War, and he too had a love for aviation. On top of that, Douglas had a brother in the 9th Air Force, and his best friend back home was fighting in the Pacific Theater in the Navy. Douglas was also married and had a son that was due to be born in early July. As Douglas talked, 
Jack couldn't help but see Douglas as another version of himself. Jack wanted so badly to have been married to Marlene and have a kid on the way while he was serving his time in war. Oddly enough, Douglas's wife's name was the same as Jack's soon-to-be mother-in-law's name. The connections were just strange. On the other hand, Gerald was soft-spoken, carried a small New Testament Bible with him at all times, and had a deep belly laugh that was as much wholesome as it was funny. He sat with a slight grin on his face, and he took each sip of beer like it was his first one. Jack had no idea why he was so drawn to these two men, but he was. He noticed Bill Davies and Tango also had the same reaction and gravitational pull that he had. Sal, on the other hand, seemed too eager to leave, and shortly after, he did, going inside to socialize with the other officers. Just as the night was beginning to dim down, that's when the topic came up on the air war and what it was like to fly a mission. That's when Jack said, Listen, I'm not going to lie to you, it's bad up there. It's not like how the war bond tours made it seem. It's just literal hell. I know that sounds cliche, but it's true. You think hell exists below us? No. It's up there. 25 angels high. Bill Davies and Tango looked surprised by Jack's sudden and dramatic burst. Well, you know, he would know. He's flown, what, 10 missions so far? Tango Ash trying to recover the moment. 11, Jack replied. 11? Bless your heart, Gerald softly said. Yeah, you must have seen all kinds of things, Douglas responded. He sure has, and you know he flew his first mission to Berlin, Bill Davies butted in. The Big B, that was your first? Questioned Douglas. Clenching his beer, Jack said, Yes, sir. What was it like? Asked Douglas. Jack sat in the question for a moment, his body tensing up, his hands getting clammy, and his shoulders tightening. Have you ever read Dante's Inferno? Jack asked. Of course, Douglas said. Gerald nodded his head as he patted Thunder's head. You remember the ending? What, Canto 34? I sure do. That's the one where they meet the devil himself, uh, chewing the unsaved, right? Douglas persisted. No, he was chewing on uh, three of the greatest portrayers, Judas being one of them. Gerald butted in. Well, anyways, that's what it was like. I watched 17 after 17 get blown out of the sky that day and on nearly every mission since. It was one hell of a way to start my tour. Well, if I remember correctly, and it's been some time since I've read that book, that's how the chapter starts off, yes? Gerald asked. Uh-huh. Followed Jack. And how did the chapter end? Jack pondered for a moment, and he came back with, They climbed the path back towards Earth, where they were at the beginning of the story. That's right. And what did they see? Gerald furthered. Stars. Jack responded. That's right. Stars. Now, Lieutenant, look up. Jack and the others looked up above them and we're seeing stars peering out behind the clouds. All right, what's your point? Tango asked. Look, if your heart is still beating, and your lungs are still full of air, then you haven't seen hell. 
There's always hope. All right, well, then tell me this, preacher. Since you are a Bible-believing person, carry a New Testament Bible with you at all times, like a good Bible-believing Christian does, let me ask you this. I stopped believing in God the same time I stopped believing in Santa Claus. What hope is there for me? Tango asked. Jack wasn't at all surprised at Tango's questioning, since he and Jack had entertained the topic many times. Well, I can tell you, while you may not believe in God, he does believe in you. The thing is, as long as your heart still beats, there's always hope for you. Jack watched as Tango and Bill both sat back in their chairs, creating distance between them and Gerald. And to add to that, regardless of how bad things are on earth, how I see it, if you've got a relationship with God and you look to Christ as your savior, then this life is the closest to hell you'll ever be. But if you choose not to have a relationship with God and you don't want to spend any eternity with them, then this world is the closest to heaven you'll ever be. Gerald replied with, Why, that was well said, Doug. Amen to that. At this, even Jack was getting agitated by these two men now. With a moment of silence hanging in the air, Jack looked at the two men a few more times and could only think of one thing to say in return. He took a sip of his beer and replied, Guys, sorry to tell you, but I've reached the heights of heaven, and I personally saw and felt no God out there. The two men were stunned in silence. Jack looked over at Tango and saw that his friend had just now realized that Jack had now abandoned his beloved faith. Do you want to get more out of Snafu? Well, guess what? There's good news for you because you can. You see, by becoming a supporter of the podcast, you will receive bonus content such as pictures and profiles of all the characters mentioned in today's episode, pictures and maps of the airfield and surrounding areas, as well as formation breakdowns of past, present, and future missions, and Q&A episodes. There is so much for you to gain by donating $3 or $10 to help support the podcast. If you would like to be a part of Snafu each week, please visit our Patreon page. The link for that's down in the show notes. Any support goes a long way in helping the podcast to continue. Your contribution is making a huge difference. Now, back to the podcast. The boss was standing in the mailroom, Rose's letter in his hand. The mail clerk had stepped out and would be returning soon. As the boss stood at the counter, he kept looking down at the envelope. He remembered the day that Rosie had given him this letter very vividly. He saw the importance in his eyes and he felt Rosie's look of disappointment ever since they had put him in the back of that ambulance. To be honest, today was the first day the boss had really allowed thoughts of Rosie to flood through his memory. He had learned with Catherine that memories are nothing more than precious moments that we get to experience one time and never return to. It was because of this. Reminiscing on such things and such lovely people was all too painful for the boss. Catherine, Rosie, and Andy, they were all in the past now, forever locked away in a chest of treasurable memorials that were best kept closed and locked away, only to be opened for special occasions and times where it was prudent and appropriate. Was this such an occasion, the boss wondered? 
Before he handed this letter off, the last thing the boss had of his former crew member and friend, should he take a few moments to remember such a friend? The boss began reminiscing about the night at the Red Lion Inn, when Rosie waited for Andy in the blistering cold. While Rosie wasn't the most heartwarming person, he did care about those who were around him. He was just about the only person who truly gave a damn about the boss, as he saw it. In fact, the boss knew for a fact that despite what happened over Brunswick, if Rosie had lived, Rosie would still respect the boss and would be the only person to be standing by him. He truly missed his friend. He had wished he could see him one last time so he could cherish that moment and show his friend the love and appreciation that he knew he most certainly would have shrugged off and scoffed at. Rosie always did have trouble making eye contact when hearing praise being sent his way. He was pure in that sense, a true rarity among humans. Unfortunately, before the boss could finish this private ceremony, the mail clerk had returned and asked the boss if he was there to send or receive mail. The boss handed the man Rosie's letter, and not long after, the boss departed the last thing of Rosie and exited the mailroom. Once outside, the boss made his way towards his hut. While on his way, he realized that he never went back and paid Mickey a visit. He was too embarrassed to return to the hospital after his run-in with Dr. Dick. Maybe he wouldn't be treated like a loose cannon now that he was responsible for the removal of a doctor that the airmen of the 300 hated with a passion. Maybe he redeemed himself in some way to the men in the hospital. As the boss pondered his decision, that's when he heard someone calling out to him. Turning around, he saw that it was Burke. Burke approached the boss and told him that Timothy and Sal did excellence today and that he'd be happy to take them on as members of his crew and in return, and in return, he'd give the boss his bombardier and his navigator since the boss had no issues with them and were both excellent at their jobs. The boss paused at the request and while he was tempted because he could see the bombardier navigator fitting in well with the rest of the little bull, he was unsure if Jack could or deserved to have such trustworthy officers under his command for now. He knew that it would be some time until he found a pilot that he trusted well enough to lead the bull in a combat. Looking at Burke, the boss thanked him for the offer but declined, stating that he would figure things out. Burke silently nodded his head and turned around and made his way in the opposite direction, towards his section of the airfield. The boss began running through potential candidates in his head for the position of pilot-in-chief of Lodabull as he walked. He did so all the way up into the hospital. Once he arrived, he was greeted by a female nurse who thanked the boss for doing what he did the night previous. While the boss was flattered, he apologized for losing his cool and asked if Mickey was still in the same place that he was the previous night. The nurse communicated that nobody had been transported from the hospital that day and that he should still be in the same place. The boss then thanked the nurse and made his way down the hallway where he had confronted Dr. Dick and soon passed into the wing of the hospital that led to where Mickey's bed was located. As the boss walked, he looked up and saw that someone was standing above Mickey's bed. The man was dressed in typical officer dress clothes and he had his head aimed downward 
as though he were talking to Mickey. As the boss arrived at Mickey's bed, he was perplexed at what he was looking at. Laying on Mickey's bed was a lifeless corpse that resembled Mickey, his face looking to be frozen, his mouth forever still in a slight grin, almost as though he were content the moment that he had passed. His eyes were closed, and his one good hand was resting in the hands of the man who was now standing over top of him. Looking at the man, the boss was even more surprised to see that it was Chaplain Schwartz, with a tear running down his cheek. It wasn't until the boss asked what happened that Chaplain Schwartz even realized that the boss was sitting next to him. With sorrow in his voice, Chaplain Schwartz told the boss that Mickey had finally begun to recover and was making some progress when he requested a chaplain to come to his bedside. When Chaplain Schwartz arrived, Mickey mentioned that he had hoped that a Catholic chaplain would have come, but he would be content with a Protestant chaplain filling in for his favor. When Chaplain Schwartz asked Mickey what the favor was, Mickey began asking questions like, will he ever walk in heaven and could God love him despite the fact that he had not gone to mass in years? The chaplain did his best to answer his questions, and after a long Q&A session, Mickey had asked the chaplain to pray over him and help him recite his act of contrition. And so Chaplain Schwartz did so, and just as he had gotten to the words, Amen, Mickey became silent, and that's when he passed. When the boss had asked when this happened, Chaplain Schwartz looked at the boss and replied that it had happened moments before the boss walked in. The boss couldn't believe it. If he had been here just a few minutes earlier, he could have said final words to Mickey. In fact, if he hadn't stopped to talk to Burke, he could have made it to say goodbye. Being succumbed to a horrifically familiar feeling of regret and sadness, the boss dramatically exited the hospital and fled to his hut. Once inside, the boss sat down on his bed and began reliving the last time that he had seen Mickey. The last time he had saw him was the time that he and Jack had visited him in the hospital and Mickey had begged them to kill him. Seeing Mickey, the man who once was so friendly and outgoing as to befriend the boss and his rookie crew, being reduced to a butchered, suicidal mess, was too horrific for the boss to bear. However, he now regretted not seeing him since that moment. The boss knew all too well what desperation sounded like. He knew that tone. He knew that echo and the look that one has when they're in that state of being. He had felt that one too many times himself. It wasn't fair for the boss to have avoided him all because of a moment of weakness and vulnerability. As the boss ruminated in Mickey's passing, he began to feel the ever-pressing silence crushing his body. He began to feel anxious, and he knew he had to do something. Standing up, the boss could feel his body becoming lighter. Dark circles surrounded his line of sight, and the feelings of a thousand needles began prickling all across his body. And before he knew it, he went limp, his body slamming onto the floor of his hut as he laid passed out and unconscious for the remainder of the evening. Thank you for listening to episode three of season two of Snafu, a historical fiction podcast depicting the average life of a bomber crew in World War II. If you would like more information about the podcast, please visit our website and our Patreon page, 
Both links are down in the show notes. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned next week for episode 5 of Snafu. Thank you.